Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show, still Chicago's only locally broadcast deep green gardening and environment program. Broadcasting live every Sunday from the Genesis Art Supply Building on North Elston Avenue on Q4 Radio and at MikeNovak.net. Here he is again, Mike Novak. And of course, welcome back to the show. And you know why we're playing that song. It's because of our next guest. Uh, I should note that uh, for those of you who are not in Chicago, uh, it has stopped raining. We have emerged from the tent. We have emerged from the tent. We have opened the windows. Wait. Okay, had to get that in there. Uh, I'll I'll have the science uh, cue ready to go. In fact, let us uh, go to the Skype right now. See if Dr. Linda Chalker Scott is there. Linda, hi. Hey, Mike. How are you? Great. It's so good to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Well, I'm glad to be here, and hopefully, I'll be um, semi-conscious. Uh, it's a little oh. early for me, but this is good. <laughs> well, you know, uh, that was my goal: is to get you <laughs> up and rolling. You you sound like me because um, um, I am not a morning person, and and people say you're a gardener. How how can you not be a morning person? And I don't know, because my background is theater. That's why uh, you know I. I I, uh, for years, was, you know, let's we get out of the theater at 11, and then we you go to the bar, and then you get to sleep <laughs> about 4, and then you wake up at noon. So that's the way that works. Uh, Dr. Linda Chalker-Scott is the author of How Plants Work, the science behind the amazing things that plants do. You're, you're likely to hear this a few times. Science. Okay. Because that's what you do. You're you're all about science, Linda. And uh, I was telling folks earlier in the show about the Garden Professor's blog, which uh, you started. And I should mention something. I'm going to give uh, Peggy Malecki, my co-host here, uh, some kudos. Give yourself a beer ding, all right? Uh, not only – you know, she, she wrote to me the other day, Linda, and she said, okay, who you have on the program? And, and, and I don't know if you heard, but before you I had C.L. Fornari. Uh, who's written uh, a new book, and and uh, so I told Peggy the books we were talking about today on the show, and she went out and bought them both and read them both. So she's so you've got two more people who've read your book. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> uh, and it's just so I I, I got to give you credit, Peggy. It's oh, thank just you. and she's even got her little bookmarks in there. I've got my little bookmarks in here. Um, one of the things. That uh, kind of well, there's there's so much. If you're interested in plants at all, uh, you you're going to love this book, how plants work. Um, but among the things that you seem really fascinated by, Linda, are anthocyanins. And most people, if you said to them, "Boy, anthocyanins, they're the key to." To how plants work are one of the keys. They would say, what? What? What are you talking about? Uh, tell us a little bit about anthocyanins and why they're important. Well, they, they are the coolest pigments, um, and everyone's going to know what they are, even if they don't recognize their name. And so they're the pigments that give the red or blue or purple colors to fruits and flowers and sometimes to leaves. So it was really the leaf color that I thought was interesting because, of course, we all know that 
you know, leaves need to be green for photosynthesis. So why are leaves red sometimes? And that's what really got me getting into the science about um, why leaves turn red. It really is fascinating. And and uh, what you point out in the book is that in often what an anthocyanin is doing is preserving water in a plant, isn't it? It, it appears to be. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, research out there, and it's usually looking at some very specific question. But um, as you know, Mike, what I do a lot of times is go out and look at all of the research and try to knit together kind of a coherent story to explain how something works. And it just looks like a lot of times if a plant is drought-stressed or stressed by salty conditions or anything that might lower the water content, that sometimes they produce anthocyanins um, in response to that. Uh, <laughs> and it, so- it sounds so simple, and yet um, it, it, it is very complex. And, and they're just one of uh, what plants ha- – I mean, you, you, you write about uh, mitochondria and chloroplasts and lignin and cutin and suberin and carotenoids and phytohormones and photorespiration. I'm just saying these <laughs> – I'm saying these words because I can, all right? <laughs> and I hope you can get sigma morphogenesis in there too then. Uh, no, I didn't write that down because I would have gotten it wrong. He hasn't had enough coffee yet. Yeah, but, but a lot of these are what you call secondary compounds. Um, and the, 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 those are the two things in the book that blew me away, the, uh, the anthocyanins and the secondary compounds and how many secondary compounds and – And explain to the folks what you mean by a secondary compound, because folks know certain things about plants, but they they probably don't know a lot about these kinds of chemicals. Well, secondary compounds is something that plant scientists kind of named everything they couldn't explain away (laughs) um, as as one big group of of, plants. compounds and so everyone knows about proteins and sugars and fats and those are all considered to be kind of um, uh, primary compounds you know things that that all life needs to survive and so when they were studying plants initially they were finding things like anthocyanins and phenolics and lignans and subarin and they really didn't know what a lot of these things were and so they just kind of heaped them all together in this group called secondary compounds meaning they weren't really essential um, to life but that's because you know we just didn't know that as much about plant science and survival um, then as we do now. And so these things, the, the so-called secondary compounds, are things that plants make um, in response to, to who knows what. Sometimes it might be to attracting a pollinator. Sometimes it might be to sur- surviving some environmental uh, stress factor. Uh, they just make up this wealth of compounds. And, and we're starting to learn what a lot of those are. I mean, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with Taxol which is used to treat some forms of cancer, and that's a secondary compound made by, by hemlocks. So, um, I'm sorry, by use. And so these things are just amazing chemicals. Um, and, and I had a, a professor years ago who said we probably haven't even touched a 90% of the compounds that are out there. That, that you know, after you list all of these things uh, and then say, yeah, maybe we don't really – We've just scratched the surface. We really don't know. And by the way, uh, I, I want to let you know that uh, Dr. Linda Chalker-Scott uh, has a, a Ph.D. in horticulture from Oregon State University and is an uh, ISA-certified arborist and a Washington State University Extension urban horticulturist. Uh, and that's a source of controversy. We'll get into that in a second. Uh, but going back to the substances that these plants make, one of the things that happens is, as you said, we try – 
to exploit them, and as you said, perhaps sometimes we can help ourselves with these substances, like finding a, a cancer drug. Uh, but just as often, it seems to me, uh, researchers try to extract or synthesize these kinds of compounds to use back on plants. And that's one of the things you do in your book is, is debunk the use of some of these compounds. Um, the, one of the ones, okay, and I'm, I'm looking at the book here, uh, like biostimulants. Um, what was the other one? Harpin is one that, that they try. And, and I've seen others. Messenger mm-hmm. is a product that um, came out, I'm a, what, a decade ago or something like that? And I can remember being pitched on it as a radio guy. Oh, you've got to try this. This is going to do wonders for your plant. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that and how these compounds work or don't work on plants? Okay, sure. So, so Harpin is, um, it's actually a, a compound that's um, made by uh, plants, well, it's made by a bacterium that causes fire blight. And so um, the, the Harpin protein would turn on a, a plant's defensive mechanisms. So it would kind of be like an immune system, but plants don't have immune systems, so I, I, I hesitate to use that analogy. Anyway, so if you, if you use this protein and exposed uh, plant leaves in the laboratory to it, they would turn on these defensive mechanisms, and they would make um, you know, lignans and phenolics and other types of defensive compounds, um, and in nature that would be kind of to wall off that bacterial infection. So this researcher discovered this protein and then... Um, extracted it and packaged it as this uh, messenger product you were talking about. And it's one of those great examples where something works really, really well in a lab situation. So you have these plant cells and you throw in the harpin and you get this response and it's all great. And then when you take it outside and try it on a real plant, it doesn't usually work. And so you have to kind of think about why that would be. And, you know, plant cells are, you know, they're floating around in, a, in an Erlenmeyer flask. They're not contained and packaged in this, you know, this, this organism, this plant that has all kinds of, of protections built in, you know, cuticles and cell walls and things that keep stuff that are outside, outside and can't get in. So when you spray the harpin onto a plant leaf, it can't get inside to, to, to make that... Um, that reaction happened. So it was a it was a great example of something that works really really well in a lab. And this guy, you know, won all kinds of awards for this research. But when you looked at the practical application of it, it just didn't pan out. Well, he he obviously discovered something important, but the practical application has yet to be determined. Isn't that right? Yeah, you'd have to you'd have to figure out some way to breach the plant's defenses to get that in there, and then you're kind of. <laughs> Then you're kind of setting the plant up to be breached by all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's kind of like breaking, you know, crossing the moat or breaking down the castle walls. You're going to open it up to everything that can get in there. So it's one of those products that, you know, if you're working with stuff um, in a lab, it might be great. But outside, it's just, you know, for a typical gardener, it's just not going to have um, the desired result. By the way, Raymond Eckert is listening or Eckhart, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, Raymond. Uh, I'm so glad you're listening. He's one of the garden professor folks, and he has the word of the day, the thigmomorphogenesis. Thigmomorphogenesis, is that it? Did I say it? Close? You did. You did. Well, he's got it kind of phonetically there, So, uh, and I'm, I'm glad that he's listening. I hope some of the other folks who uh, frequent the garden professors are there. But g- getting back to what we were just saying is that 
this is an issue that things that happen in the lab don't necessarily happen in nature. Um, and uh, you can manipulate things in a lab and then not be able to reproduce them out in the field. And, and, and some of that has to do with the toxicity of plants and how you me- measure LDS and things like that. Uh, uh, how, how do scientists reconcile that? Well, that's a really great question, and it it gets to one of the, the, the problems that there is in science is you pretty much have scientists in, in two camps, and I don't mean this in a bad way. It's just you know where you tend to find your interest. So you have a bunch of scientists that are theoretical science scientists, and I used to be one of those. You know, these are the people that are in, in the lab and working, you know, you know bench chemistry and, and seeing how things work at the molecular or cellular level. Um, and figuring out from the very basic um, unit of, of a plant how plants work. Then there's the other end of it, which is the applied or practical sciences, which is taking a lot of that theoretical science, applying it to you know a field situation, and seeing does it still work when you're looking at things out in the environment. And sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. So um, having spanned both those areas now, starting out you know with the theoretical stuff, and now being pretty much only in the practical side of it. Um, Sometimes that connection just isn't there, and it's, it's because when you're looking at things in a lab, um, you know, you've, you've not only removed the plant from its environment, but sometimes you're removing cells from the plant and just looking at how certain cells uh, do things, which is great when you're figuring out, again, things at a, at a molecular or genetic level, but, you know, figuring out how to work all that backwards and make it actually work for a plant in your garden Sometimes it just, we're just not there yet. Well, what it is, is science. And and one of the things you do now that you're out in the real world doing this, um, and you've done this for years. In fact, your first couple of books were about debunking commonly held uh, myths uh, out in the garden world, and there seem to be a ton of them. There's, I don't know why, and and well, I think I think I know partly why they they are out there, Linda. And that is, in uh, my role as a garden communicator and as a master gardener, and people ask you questions all the time. I've come to understand, and this is, and it's a reason why they should read your book. I've come to understand that most people have no clue as to how plants work. They, they have no idea uh, how to grow them. They're, they're mystified by, the, the, you know, by roots. They're mystified by stems, by leaves, by flowers, by all of it. Uh, and so they get these quirky, sometimes bizarre ideas about what they should be doing uh, with plants. Do you find the same thing? Oh, absolutely. And I, I do have to tell you, tell you, Mike, that back when I was getting my Ph.D., that all those myths that I've wrote about and since debunked were all things that we were either taught or I believed because the science for, you know, practical, um, practical plant growing um, just really wasn't out there except in agricultural situations. So there wasn't any real science behind, you know, gardening or arboriculture or anything like that. Uh, and, and, and as a matter of fact, you've got uh, a website uh, of myths and um, the uh, – uh, I want to – what was the name of uh, your first book? I, I could go find it here, but I don't uh, have it right in front of me. 
It's it's the informed gardener. There you go. Okay, yeah. the informed gardener, and then the informed gardener rides blooms, blooms again. Blooms again, um, and um, we got to get into a couple of them uh, <laughs> because uh, well, the one that that struck me from reading uh, how plants work is one that that's not at the top of your list um, because I know at the top of your list are things like compost tea. And uh, Epsom salts with an M at the end, not Epson as in the printer. Um, but the one that caught my eye uh, in your book, and I'm going to read this. Uh, this is what you wrote in How Plants Work. I know a lot of you enjoy your power tools, and handling a rototiller is almost <laughs> as fun as riding a bucking bronco. But as far as life in the soil is concerned, this is the equivalent of an underground tsunami. Rototilling destroys natural soil structure along with any plant roots and hapless animals in the path of destruction. Soils are more than just a medium for growing veggies. They are complex ecosystems containing beneficial bacteria, fungi, insects, nematodes, earthworms, and many other denizens. Well-structured soils, along with their natural living communities of organisms, benefit plant roots and enhance their establishment. Roots damaged by rototilling require energy and resources to repair, and when their protective outer tissues are torn, they are exposed to diseases and pests. Oh, that, that just makes me feel so good to read that. I, <laughs> I, I, people, rototilling is practically a cult. Uh, it's certainly some kind of religion. Um, uh, it's a ritual, and there are people who will do it twice a year regardless of what their soil is like, uh, and 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 I'm glad you 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 describe it like this. I have I have used when I have told people why are you you know ripping up your soil. I usually say it in regard to the soil food web. Um, I say yeah, you're just completely dismantling the soil food web. Um, but most people don't know what the soil food web is anyway, Linda. So that's <laughs> that's a problem with that. Talk about rototilling a little bit. Well, you know, and it is really ingrained in us, and I think partially it's because, you know, we come from agrarian roots. You know, we were all uh, growing things agriculturally to, to survive, you know, for centuries, and part of that was plowing and preparing the soil for growing a crop. So we bring, you know, a, that history with us into into gardening, and, and a lot of times we take those practices like, you know, like tilling up the, the soil first before you're planting, and that's where the rototilling comes in. So, you know, it's, it's something that we've just been doing for centuries, and it's it's hard to break that habit. But, you know, most of us aren't, you know, growing crops intensively. Most of us have uh, landscape plants in our, our yard as well as vegetables. So we've got trees and shrubs, and all of their roots are all over the place, and every time you get the rototiller out, you know, you are just making mincemeat out of all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and the thing is, you get more erosion, you get compaction, you get runoff, um, because all that soil now is is disengaged from the roots and the fungi that were holding everything together into this nice, porous mat. And everyone's seen this. You know, when you see a tree that goes down or something that pulls the soil up from it, you know, it's this, it's this big veil that hangs down of roots and soil. And that's what it normally looks like. It doesn't look like, you know... Um, powdered toast which is what it looks like after you get through with with a rototiller it's just this this loose stuff um and it really is not a great medium for growing plants um 
Yeah, it's it's tougher. It's sometimes it's a leap of faith to do something like growing no-till, but people that have gone no-till and 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 planted their vegetable gardens that way, not only is it easier, um, they've just been a lot happier with the the reduced fertilizer, um, reduced water. Sometimes it's just you know it's a it's a it's a it's easier on the earth um, to to grow your vegetables that way. Let me ask you a question about that. It, would you even advise against it uh, with compacted, severely compacted soil, or would you say it's it's you know one time only and and then add your organic matter? You know, I as you probably know, Mike, I am cheap and lazy, and um, <laughs> <laughs> the the, more, the the less work I can get away with not doing is the better. Um, what I've told people to do with compacted soils, and you have to be patient. You know, if you want instant results, then yeah, maybe you're going to drag out the rototiller. But, you know, if you mulch a bare soil, bare compacted soil, with something, um, you know, like, a, like an arborist wood chip, you know, a good six inches, and just let it sit. Yep. It takes care of itself. You don't have to do a darn thing. You know, it gets better hydrated. The, the earthworms are going to be uh, mixing stuff in. Plant roots mix stuff up. And... Give it, give it a, a month or two, move that, that wood chip mulch aside, and all of a sudden you've got this nice friable soil that's just ready for planting. Except that we want it now. Yeah, Everybody yeah. wants instant gratification. You know, I, I, one of the things I, in garden talks I will say to folks is because they, they'll, they'll, the, when you put something in the ground, you put some plugs in the ground, they ask, will it spread by next week? I've got a wedding, you know. I I, I need I need this ground cover. Uh, you know, Mike, I, gardening is is an act of patience, and I would say anyone who calls himself a gardener has to be patient. And anyone who wants instant results is not a true gardener. That's my battle cry. There, there's a tweet right there. Anyone ahead, who George. doesn't have patience is not a true gardener. I I I agree. Well, George is going to put that out on Twitter right and if now. If they don't have patience, they can go to the botanic gardens and take pictures. There you go. You know, that's a really good point. Uh, it's Dr. Linda Chalker-Scott, author of How Plants Work, The Science Behind the Amazing Thing Plants Do. Now, I did have a a friend um, send me a message this morning uh, about, because she's been on the, sh- the program, uh, and that's Audrey Fisher, uh, and she's uh, behind a campaign to get us to use lights better in our municipalities uh we 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 you know we've lost starlight because uh we're sending light into space and we don't pay attention to where it goes uh we're we're planning to replace uh 270,000 lights in Chicago with blue LEDs right now now we're hoping that doesn't happen because as you point out in the book um that that affects the physiology of plants as well as animals doesn't it it does, and it's really something that, that anybody who can get out and look at plants, especially when fall comes up, and get around plants that are growing around um, high-intensity streetlights, and especially lights that are on 24 hours a day, and you can see exactly what plants do with that light. What it, well, how does it mess with them? Well, when plants get ready to go dormant... Um, they have to do a whole bunch of biochemical things that are happening inside that you're not going to see. And they don't cue on temperature initially because, you know, temperatures, especially now uh, with, with climate change, they're all over the place. It can be extremely hot or extremely cold, and, and that's always that way. But day length is always the same from year to year. So we always have um, summer solstice, you know, June 21st, June 22nd. 
And it's actually after that point, obviously, that days start getting shorter. And that's what plants key into is that gradual shortening of day length. So they're right now out there getting ready for fall in ways that we can't see. And you'll see this because they'll stop growing after a while, even if they have plenty of, of, of water and fertilizer and, and light, they've just, you know, they stop putting on new growth. And that's part of getting ready for, for winter. But if they sense that they have endless summer because there's a street lamp or a 24-hour light that is intense enough to fool them to thinking it's sunlight, they will keep growing. And then what happens is uh, fall comes along and they and it gets colder all of a sudden and normally plants will go ahead and start changing colors. Those anthocyanins come out, except the other ones don't. And so you can see this. You'll see trees where um, the side of it that's facing a streetlight will still be green and the rest of it is turning red. It's a really cool mm. thing to look for. It's cool, but it's, uh, it's really messing with the plant. It is, but it's not lethal um, unless it affects the entire plant. But normally, it's just a you know a part of the plant that's closest to that light source. Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Of, you know, it's a chronic stress, and I suppose if the plant's stressed in other ways, like it's a street tree or you know something else where it's you know not very happy, that it could shorten its lifespan. But really, what it is, it's just kind of an interesting thing to look at and say, yep, yeah, plants. Plants respond to light in very interesting ways. Yeah, they do. do. All right, a couple of things we have to get into before I let you go. And one is the Garden Professor's blog. Um, As as you heard earlier, uh, one of um, your friends and our friends, Raymond Eckhart, is posting. He also posted some stuff from the blog here uh, on uh, my Facebook page. You've got over 7,300 people now following, and it's a science-based Facebook uh, page, and that doesn't always work, even though you continue to tell people. Uh, Yeah, and it's funny because you have these pinned posts. It's like, please keep it factual. Please use science. And then people come in, and they they throw all these myths in there, and and, and the, the regulars on the page already know what's coming next when when somebody does that uh but it it has made the page a little bit controversial because i think some people think you're mean uh, not you personally but people on the page are mean or snarky um and uh it's kind of one of those situations if you can't take the heat then you probably should get out of the kitchen um is is the way i look at it uh because what you're trying to do is get to the heart of issues with science that's right and you know, anecdotal information is great, and we all have have stories either with the garden or someplace else where we will swear by something and that it works. But this is not the group for that because you can find <laughs> lots of groups where people will share their, their favorite home remedies or their favorite anecdotal experiences, and you're not going to find very many groups that someone's going to slog through the science and, you know, pick out the little bits that are that are applicable for gardeners. And so that's what this group does, and it's real really great group um you know people all over the world and it's not you know just just me and other horticulturists i mean we've got entomologists and pathologists all these people with all this expertise and they all buy into you know the the principle that this is going to be a science-based discussion group and it's fascinating and i learn new stuff every day i love it uh and 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 really if you're a serious gardener 
just you don't have to go there every day, uh, but the, you can do a search on the page if you've got a particular problem in your garden, and it's pretty likely the conversation has been there a number of times, uh, and uh, you'll learn a lot. I was pretty, a few weeks ago, some guy posted something that was obviously just silly, and uh, he said he posted something, and you wrote no. And then he posted, and then and then he posted something again, and you and you wrote, "Read the pinned post." And then he wrote something else, and you said, "No." And then he wrote something else, and you said, "Read the pinned post." And it, it just kept going on like that, and, and everything he said was really dumb, and you just kept saying no, and it, and it, and I and I laughed out loud. I it, it really had me go. It was very very funny, uh, unintentionally funny. Maybe you you were meaning to be funny, but I don't think you were. <laughs> no. <laughs> Where you're like no slap. Yeah, it's it, you know, and this is why people think I'm mean or snarky or whatever. But I'll get you know, I, I, Ray and I do the bulk of the, the the managing of of the posts, and we'll see the same thing come up time and time again. It's like you know, please do a search, and you'll see we've discussed this. And pretty soon, and I'm sorry, I'm human, but I lose my manners, and I sh- I should be nicer and say more than just no. But sometimes I've got 15 different posts I have to respond to, so it just comes out as no. <laughs> well, no, that's actually a good response rather than wasting your time. Just say, nope. Okay, moving on here. Uh, and I didn't realize that Ray was uh, one of the people who managed it with you, so I apologize for that if I, uh, did, you know, I don't, I don't have a sense of everybody who's involved. I just get on there from time to time and, and read stuff. Uh, all right, before I let you go, um, we got to get to the, the nasty stuff, uh, which is uh, Washington State University. Uh, and and the only reason I bring this up is because you're obviously not afraid of it. Uh, the fact that they're trying to release you for, I'm using air quotes here, incompetence. Um, and when did that start? You know, I think it must have started back in, well, about 2009, 2010. Is, it was when, I mean, it didn't get really bad until more recently, but... You know, universities um, are always scrambling for money, and and we're all expected to try to bring in um, grants and other other forms of support. And some areas are more lucrative than others. But what what the universities, and it's not just WSU; it's a lot of the universities um, with a land grant mission with extension people, um, are starting to not. Uh, consider the extension part to be as important, especially in terms of reaching out to the general public who are not going to be sending dollars back. Now, you can argue that taxpayers are doing this anyway because their taxes help support the university, and that's absolutely Hello. true. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, money talks, and what what's happened um, at our university is that the extension positions are more and more going to support commodities. So, in other words, for us, it would be supporting um, you know, res- uh, working with apple growers or wheat growers or or berry growers or, or wine you know winemakers and grape growers, and that's great because that's you know those are important commodities. But um, there's a growing number of people that are in urban areas that need to have science-based information too, and historically this is what extension agents you know used to do was work with the general public, which was mostly farmers. And um, I'm a specialist. I'm not an agent, so I have a I have a responsibility to the entire state, not just to um, a, a county. And what's happened is that I don't bring in enough dollars um, because I'm not in a research area that that generates dollars. And plus, I don't have um, I don't have a mandate to be doing that as my main job. My main job is to is to be educating people about urban horticulture. 
So it's just it's gotten to um, kind of this this uh, <laughs> going head to head with administration, just saying, you know, this is not, you know, I'm happy to continue to do research and to publish, which I do, but I am not a researcher. I am an extension specialist, and I have a 100% mandate to do, you know, education. So it's just gotten, um, it just escalates every year, and so every year I would be found to be wanting in my um, my outputs for the year because I didn't have enough dollars and I didn't have enough peer-reviewed journal articles uh, because I was busy doing extension fact sheets and manuals, which also, by the way, are peer-reviewed, but they're directly related to my target audience, which is people you know like you, um, gardeners. And um, it's it it gotten to the point this year where I was tired of suffering in silence and I figured that people needed to know what was going on. So mm. I just made everything very public. Um, it's been, it was painful to do it because there's been some really nasty things written about me by the administration, but I figured, you know, I'll let everybody can see this. So <laughs> that's, that's where we are. Um, I'm hoping things are going to be moving forward. We've got a brand new president who's come in um, who from what I've heard, um, appreciates what extension is and what extension does. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. Well, wow, there's just there's so much to say about that. One of the things is even in Illinois, not just even in Illinois, but across the country, extension is uh, under fire. Um, there's a, a loss of revenue. Folks don't understand the mission of extension, um, a lot of, as you say, in the old days, it was farmers and 4F, and now it's a lot of master gardeners. And if you look at what master gardeners do and all the volunteer hours they put in, uh, they bring a lot back to the state. Uh, and when you look at, at, at the, uh, the man hours involved, that's a lot of money's worth of information that goes out to the general public. And as you say, the way of the way we quantify these things is not exactly accurate. It's, it's, it, it, it doesn't make any sense because, as you said, the tax dollars cover this and the savings that people uh, have from being able to do stuff themselves and the learning. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that you can't put into dollars and cents. Um, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And what people – what, where the disconnect is, is yes, the university always reports all those you know in-kind dollars that come from master Gal- Mar- master gardener volunteer um, tireless efforts, but someone has to educate the master gardeners, mm-hmm. and that someone is someone like me, and someone who is an entomologist, and someone who's a pathologist. The you know, master gardeners aren't just you know they they have to get their education from somewhere, and if it's not going to be from people like me, then it's going to end up being the internet. And we all know that's a really bad place to go sometimes. <laughs> that's a scary place, okay? That's yeah. a scary place to go because you come up with those things that show up on your Facebook page about Epsom salts. And with, rototilling. And rototilling, yeah. Uh, and and you're stuck with that. And those get passed around really, really fast, whereas how many people are going to read how plants work? Not nearly as many as they're going to glance at something on their Facebook page. So, uh, and and what's got to be a little bit gratifying for you is the response of the people that you have worked with, including the people on the Garden Professor's blog uh, and the people who have read your books, because um, I see the outrage 
at what the university is trying to do. I mean, if you're going to use a word, please don't use incompetence, okay? That's, that, if there was ever a word that did not apply, it's that one, all right? Now, you might use something else, like you said, maybe snarky. Uh, uh, I, but I don't, you don't sound snarky to me. And we've, we've talked a number of times. Um, you've only smacked me down once or twice. Uh, uh, and I just, I just don't get it actually. But I also know that it's a reason I stayed out of academia because I know that there's a lot of politics in academia and, and infighting, um, uh, in in war. So, um, I'm hoping this works out for you. Well, and, and I'm glad you mentioned all the support I've gotten because it's been incredible. Um, my, my garden professor colleagues, um, both the ones in academia and, and most especially, you know, the people that are in the Facebook uh, uh, group have been great. They've, they've sent emails and letters. I know that's had an effect. I know it has because I've heard indirectly that it's had an effect. So I'm glad I took it public. I'm glad people have had the chance to to weigh in on it because it's not just me. As you mentioned, Extension's under attack everywhere. And I think it's because nobody knows exactly what Extension means. I mean, here we are. We're supposed to be these great communicators, and we can't even explain what Extension means to people. (laughs) Um, You know, if people really knew. Um, you know the benefits that they get from people that have extension appointments, whether it's direct or indirect, um, there'd be a lot more support for it. But there's just this disconnect um, when we're not we're not able to explain why extension programs are important. That is so true. Uh, and until we figure that out, they're not going to have the value that they should. Uh, so I think what we need is uh, we need some marketing, right? We yeah. need, we, and communicators, yeah. that's why I'm here. I'm, I, it's part of my job is to say to people, you don't have any idea. In fact, I bet a lot of people listening to this program have never even heard the word extension. Uh, well, you need to know what it mm-hmm. is and that it supports a lot of – and it's not just gardeners. It's, it's, it's health and, and other aspects of uh, our lives. And it's, it's the education, but it's also what is the relevance it's getting people to realize what problem do you solve? What is the relevance to me in my daily life? Otherwise, it's just that much more noise going past. And I think that's part of the marketing and the education of how is this affecting me? Uh, well, Linda Chalker Scott, uh, thank you so much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, uh, let's not wait a couple of years uh, before we do it again. I got a feeling maybe uh, as this thing shakes down at WSU, you and I will have to chat again. But um, uh, uh, now that you're up early, you know, <laughs> go out, have, have a cup of coffee, and go out in the garden and do something, okay? I am absolutely going to. It's a gorgeous day, and I've got weeds waiting and pruning to do. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, well, Linda. when you're done with that, come over to my place, all right? I can use the help. All right, we'll, we will talk very soon. Sounds good, Mike. Thanks so much. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And I need to just play this one more time. Science. Okay. <laughs> one more time. Because I just one more time. Science. What were the 80s like? They were wonderful. <laughs> no, actually, the 70s were even better, okay? Can I tell you that? The 70s were great.